This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to Your Radio Doctor on this beautiful August Sunday. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Yes, I did have a frog for breakfast, so I'm a little raspy, but we are going to plow through this morning. Skin cancer is the most common cancer in the United States The incidence of melanoma skin cancer is the most fatal form of skin cancer and increasing faster than any other potentially preventable cancer in our country. Philadelphia has the good fortune to be the home of the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania, the nation's first dermatology department, founded in 1874, developed and grown to its present world-renowned stature. It's produced more national and international professors of dermatology than any other dermatology department in America. Our very special guest today is from the University of Penn's Department of Dermatology, Dr. Harold William Higgins, an assistant professor of clinical dermatology and the lab director of the Pennsylvania Hospital Mohs Surgery Unit. Welcome, Bill. Wonderful to have you with us. Thank you, Marianne. It's a pleasure to be here. And I think I also had a frog for breakfast this morning. <laughs> I think like I had the whole thing, not just the frog's legs. But uh, <laughs> um, So we talk about skin cancer. It's the largest, largest organ in the body. And so exposed to sun, chances are it's going to be affected. There are two main categories of skin cancer that we consider, melanoma and non-melanoma. Why don't you tell us about the two types of non-melanoma first, Bill, if you would. Sure. So uh, non-melanoma skin cancer, uh, we also call keratinocyte carcinoma, and it is derived from the cells on the top layer of our skin, keratinocytes. And that includes basal cell carcinoma, which is by far the most common skin cancer with only over 3 million diagnosed per year. And then its cousin, squamous cell carcinoma, which is the second most common skin cancer. Uh, Basal and squamous cell carcinoma are very treatable by the methods we'll describe later in the podcast, but they're extremely common. And in fact, they're probably underreported because most of our cancer registries don't completely capture the total amount that are out there. Mm -hmm. 
And I would imagine the risk factors are similar for both, but there are nuances. Let's talk about the risk factors. So yeah, the biggest risk factors are, well, ultraviolet radiation and then your genetics. So sun exposure, um, ultraviolet A, ultraviolet B radiation from the sun is going to be your greatest risk factor. And then also your um, skin color being fair, having blue or green eyes is going to put you at greater risk for skin cancer. Um, as far as the nuances of ultraviolet radiation, um, there are skin cancers that come from more intermittent sun exposure. So someone who's at a desk job from Monday through Friday and then goes out on the weekend and goes boating or goes skiing, they're at greater risk of developing a basal cell carcinoma and certain subtypes of melanoma. Whereas chronic sun exposure, say for example, someone was a cowboy, ranch hand, um, or worked out on a fishing boat, they're more apt to develop squamous cell carcinoma and a type of melanoma called lentigo malignant melanoma. Other risk factors though, uh, tanning booths are a no-no. Um, more and more states are banning them for minors. Uh, arsenic exposure, so some well water can have arsenic, um, certain pesticides. Uh, patients who have had radiation therapy uh, for other cancers. And then in certain populations, the human papillomavirus, and these relate more to the um, squamous cell carcinomas we see on the genitalia. Smoking is a risk factor for everything. So squamous cell, there's an association um, with smoking and squamous cell carcinoma. And then we see a very large population of immunosuppressed patients, patients who have had solid organ transplants, like a heart transplant, lung transplant, um, and they're on medications that suppress their immune system. This population develops a very high burden of skin cancer. And then patients who have HIV, and those are long-term steroids. And my listeners know that I'm a GI doc. So we see patients with Crohn's disease who are on chronic immunosuppressives called biologics, and we're always checking their skin for squamous cell carcinomas as well. So are there different features in the way they appear? They can be so sneaky because there is no one set appearance for basal cell or squamous. Tell us a little bit about that, Bill, if you would. Yeah, that's so true. Um, once you've had your first skin cancer, you learn about a lot about the appearance of them mm. and their presentation, um, but it can be very vague. Oftentimes, it's just a site that won't heal, like a pimple that doesn't heal or a non-healing wound. Um, but if you're to look at the textbook description, basal cell carcinomas tend to grow um, sort of a pink to violet color, and they have a shininess or we'll call a pearliness to them. Um, they can develop anywhere in the body, but we see them quite often on sun-exposed areas like the head and neck. Squamous cell carcinoma um, can have a similar appearance, same idea, spot that doesn't heal, pimple that doesn't heal. But these tend to have more of a, um, like a white scale on the top of them. And they can also, there's one type that can grow up um, like a little volcano on the skin, so to speak. And I know that people of color people that have brown or black skin, they don't get a pass. They're much less likely. The melanocytes or the cells uh, under the surface of the skin that produce melanin or, or tan color uh, protect them a little bit from the sun, but they're still at risk for skin cancer, which I guess in, um, can occur in places that are not typically sun exposed, right? They can get squamous cell cancers uh, maybe in the genital areas. 
Yeah, so um, we see skin cancer in patients of all different skin types, um, from people with fair complexions to people with um, um, more of a darker complexion. Uh, patients who um, like uh, who are, have a darker complexion are more risk of getting uh, certain skin cancers on areas uh, like the hands, for example. There's a type of melanoma that can develop in the hands and feet called an acrolentiginous melanoma. But they can also develop basal cells, squamous cells. So it's important for all populations to sun protect and do, um, do many of the preventative measures that we'll discuss in more detail in a moment. And we talk about treating the different cancers. Obviously, it's going to depend on where the growth is located, how big it is. You detect how deep the growth has gone before you uh, come up with a treatment plan and the person's general health and their medical history because maybe they can't tolerate surgery. So can you, we have about a minute and a half to talk about some of the treatments before we talk about Mohs in the next segment. Yes, so you're exactly right, Marianne. The, um, the tumor type, the depth, and some other features, as well as someone's overall health, will help us guide the patient towards the treatment that's best for them. Sometimes if something is superficial, you can freeze it with liquid nitrogen. Sometimes you can scrape the skin and just scrape the surface of it off, which is a fairly simple procedure. Uh, there are other more invasive procedures, which we'll talk about in more detail, like Mohs surgery and radiation therapy that are used for more aggressive tumors. Mm -hmm. I know that um, if a person has one skin cancer, they're much more likely to get another one, uh, whether it's through basal and squamous cell cancers interact in terms of risk for the patient? I guess so if they have common risk factors. Uh, yeah, so it, they do have common risk factors. And yes, that is a risk factor in and of itself. If you've had one of them, unfortunately, the literature will suggest that you're a greater likelihood of having more in the future. So if you have one, it's good to be surveillanced on a regular interval by a dermatologist because if you catch them earlier, you're more apt to have more of the simplistic therapies we described. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Bill Higgins from University of Pennsylvania Dermatology. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Dr. Bill Higgins is here from the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Dermatology. Bill, I know that you are the director of the Mohs Procedure Lab at Pennsylvania Hospital. We want to get into detail about a Mohs procedure, what it is, when do you choose Mohs over other therapies, and maybe walk us through, if you would, A to Z, dermatology, a biopsy um, in your regular dermatologist's office, and then they're referred to you. Sure. So yeah, I, I practice primarily Mohs micrographic surgery. And the name of the procedure is, is based on a gentleman's last name, Frederick Mose, who created this back in the 30s. And while it took off then, it became much more popular in the 70s um, when two gentlemen, Dr. Stedman and Dr. Tromovich, made it into what it is today. And Mose surgery is where we're able to take out a skin cancer under local anesthesia, study it. On our in our on-site laboratory, so process it, make it into microscope slides, and then I'm the pathologist who gets to look at it and make sure it's out completely. And if it's not, we come back and take more and do that until we've completely got the skin cancer excised. 
And then um, typically that same day, uh, the patient will have the area reconstructed. And that reconstruction can vary from letting it heal naturally without stitches to closing it in a straight line with stitches to doing what's called a skin flap where we move some skin from one area to cover the area where there's a deficit or a graft repair. And the chain of events that happens is typically a patient will be seen first by a general dermatologist who will biopsy the site, diagnose it as skin cancer. So oftentimes that will be basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma, although we are treating other different types of tumors. They'll then be referred into our care, at which point we'll usually have them come in, evaluate the site, discuss treatment options, one of which may be Mohs surgery, mm -hmm. and then give them the care that we feel would be best um, would best treat that type of skin cancer based on the features of the skin skin cancer as well as the patient's overall health. Right. So what does a melanoma look like in its very beginning stages? Because it can be really tricky, especially if somebody has a lot of moles. I know one of the things I remember memorizing in medical school was we look for the ugly duckling. If a person has, and I think the rule of thumb is over 50 moles, but let's say somebody has fewer than that. But let's say somebody has 15 or 20. If one looks different from the others, that sounds like a, a kindergarten song. What's different about this than the others? But one might be a little more irregular. Tell us how that would jump out at a patient. So yeah, the, that we love that way of looking at it. So if you are someone that does have multiple moles or nevi, looking for one that's the ugly duckling, the one that has a different color than the rest, a different shape than the rest. We oftentimes follow what are called the A, B, C, D, and now E's of melanoma. Mm -hmm. And these are, these are different features that we're looking at um, when we're evaluating a lesion to help decide if it is something that should be biopsied or monitored. And A means the lesion has asymmetry, meaning if you looked at a, site, at a spot, split it down the middle and fold it in half on itself where the two sides match in their shape and their appearance. B refers to borders. So are the borders of the skin cancer nice and even and smooth? Or are they more irregular or more scalloped, kind of choppy around the perimeter? C refers to the color of a lesion. So Ideally, we'd want a mold to have a uniform color, to be uniformly brown or black. But if there's um, variable colors, when you look at it, meaning it's a mixture of brown, mixture of black, maybe some areas where there's no pigment at all, that gives us concern. Diameter, uh, any lesion that has a diameter greater than a pencil eraser makes us start to um, look at it more carefully. And then the most recent addition is E or evolving. So pretty much after the second and third decade of life, we shouldn't be developing new moles. So if you develop a new mole at that time period, that's one you should start keeping an eye on. Or if a, an existing mole starts to evolve or change, that's when we want to start considering um, doing a biopsy or serially monitoring a site. And any two of those features that I mentioned, if you have any two, that would make us more apt to uh, wanted biopsy. So for example, a lesion that had a uh, diameter greater than a pencil eraser, and it had irregular borders, we'd be more apt to want to biopsy it. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, the insidious nature of melanoma never stops. It's not just going to appear on the skin. Sometimes it starts to grow in the lining of your eyes or sinuses, 
or the anus or the vaginal area. Who would think to keep their eye on the, the lining of their sinuses? And also, I know people of color, as we talked earlier, the melanocytes or the, the color of their, the cells that, that give them color are more likely to protect them. But they get melanomas in unusual places, their palms, their soles, and under their fingernails and toenails. I actually had a patient about three months ago who had a dark spot under his fingernail. And I said, please, please, I will take you to the dermatologist myself. Please get that checked. So I'm still waiting to hear from him. But um, it's the statistics are maybe one in 40 Caucasians, one in a thousand African-Americans, but they're still at risk. So we it's so important for people, as you said earlier, of all colors to pay attention. I guess the, the sneakiest part of melanoma is when it's amelanotic or it has no color at all. How dare you show up as a pink lesion? That's just not fair. I, I would agree. Those are particularly difficult to diagnose. Um, but just to reinforce what you were saying a moment ago, uh, it's important to not only have your skin checked, um, especially if you have a personal or family history of melanoma, but if you're someone who's at greater risk, having regular eye exams to study your eye because you can get melanoma in the eye. Also, um, as you mentioned, you can get it on the genitalia. So when you're going to see your OBGYN, making sure they're looking for any new or changing spots, but it can occur in more case, more spots than just our skin. Um, mm -hmm. So it's important to be alerted to that. Um, and like you said, in different um, patients uh, with skin of color, um, those uh, uh, the lesions they develop are going to be more on their hands and their feet. So we have to be aware of that and, and make sure we examine those areas as well. Well, I remember reading years ago, and I think the statistic still stands, excuse me, using a tanning bed, I don't know what number of times, maybe five times as a teenager, a pretty small number, bumps the risk for melanoma by 75%. Why aren't they just plain old outlawed? I don't understand how that can even still exist. That makes me crazy. Because people think, too, if I get a little tan at the tanning booth, that it'll protect me from a burn when I go out to the shore. Well, and again, you know a lot more than I, but tanning booths are more UVA rays, and the sun out in the world is UVB, so they're not really connected so much anyway. Oh, I mean, they both cause melanoma, but it, tanning beds should be history, Yes. I would totally agree. It's it's unfortunate that um, how widespread the use still is of tanning beds. In many states, they're now being banned for minors. Um, I previously worked at Brown in Rhode Island, and there there was a tanning uh, bill that was passed that um, prevented tanning bed use for minors. And I feel like the more that will happen in other states, the better off we're going to be for our future generations in mm -hmm. minimizing. And I think in some places there's a there's an extra tax on them as well. Maybe in LA, I read about that one time. The other quick thing I was going to ask is, I know sunglasses can protect our eyes from cataracts forming, but they really don't help protect from melanoma. And where can you get melanoma? I know the uvea, but not not the retina. Can you get melanoma on the retina? Um, you, yeah, it is more often on the uvea. Uh, you can get on the iris and on the choroid membrane. Um, but uh, as far as sun protection for the eyes, um, what we do know is sunglasses uh, that have broad spectrum UVA and UVB protection can help with uh, particularly non-melanoma skin cancers around the eyes. So, um, so, so would recommend them for that purpose. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with more on treatment of melanoma. 
Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Bill Higgins. So much to know about melanoma, and we're learning great information. Bill, before you decide on therapy, when you do find a melanoma, it has to be staged. Tell us what that means. So staging is a very important part of deciding how we'd manage that particular individual's care. Staging is dependent on uh, the features uh, of the melanoma that were found on the biopsy. So for example, when the pathologist looks at that melanoma, they're looking for certain characteristics that might suggest the melanoma is less aggressive or more aggressive. The uh, physician might also opt to sample one's lymph nodes, um, which are uh, usually adjacent to the site of the melanoma location on the body. And this may be done in conjunction with having the lesion or the melanoma excised surgically, um, meaning the sentinel lymph node biopsy or sampling of the lymph node might be done before an excision is done or a surgery is done. So for example, if a patient comes to see me for Mohs surgery of a melanoma on the cheek, we might have them set up to have their lymph nodes sampled by one of our ENT colleagues or ear, nose, and throat colleagues the week before our surgical procedure, and then proceed with Mohs, which is when we surgically excise the area or the melanoma, check it under the microscope, and then reconstruct it that same day. If melanomas are more aggressive, meaning they are spread to the lymph node, or we found that they've traveled to other locations in the body, then we start thinking about other therapies in addition to surgery. So there are therapies called uh, immunotherapy, um, which are essentially medications that we take that allow our immune system to better target and treat melanoma in the body, um, as well as chemotherapy, conventional chemotherapy. So the staging is very important in helping design and to um, uh, specifically um, um, identify what would be best for each individual patient. So typically, uh, Mohs is a procedure that you remove the obvious lesion and you go into the lab right away and look under the microscope because what you're hoping to see, I'm trying to provide a visual for our listeners, you're hoping that you see the the lesion, the growth, and maybe two millimeters of normal tissue underneath it before you call it a day. You want to make sure there's a margin of healthy tissue that separates the cancer cells from the underlying normal cells, and that's your way of saying one and done. If you get in there and you say, mm, we have a millimeter or less or no normal tissue, then you go back to the area and take more tissue. It's like you're on the beach and you're digging a hole. And when you get to water, you know, you've, you've you know, made your goal. Only in this case, you want to get to dry land. You want to get to normal tissue. So I think people need to hear that. And that's why when you have a Mohs procedure in the office, you sit there for a while, but boy, is it worth it because you're not closing up a, an incision with leftover cells that will come back, basal cell can recur at the same site, right? And that's that's the the beauty of it is we're able to determine that very that same day that these skin cancers completely excised, and some of these skin cancers, melanomas in particular, can be a little bit like an iceberg. So what's on the surface of the skin may not represent what's going on beneath. 
And the only way we can determine that is sometimes by looking at, at the area under the microscope to see where there are roots or where there are tendrils of the tumor spreading beyond the naked eye. So yes, that, that's the beautiful part about it is you're making sure that cancer is totally out before you decide to stitch it up or reconstruct the area. Now, I know that uh, University of Penn has always been ahead of the curve, but you have a new therapy that employs most MOHS, if people want to read about it, MOHS is named after the doctor who um, came up with the procedure. You have a procedure now that's exclusive for melanomas. Tell us about that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, we are very fortunate, Penn, in that it's one of the few sites where we can actually do MOHS for melanoma. So let me... Um, for, a, for example, describe what the alternative is. So um, prior to Mohs for melanoma, if someone had a skin cancer or melanoma on the face, they would have gone to have the area excised or surgically removed and then stitched that day, but before this would have been stitched before knowing that the edges are clean. So say we have a patient who had a melanoma on the lip. The area was removed by this older method where it's taken out sent off for pathology as opposed to reading it that same day. It's stitched, so the healing begins. And then seven days later or so, they get the results of whether or not it was completely removed or excised or whether or not there's something still there. Oftentimes, or, or not infrequently, patients would find that the edges or the margins of that area still had skin cancer and would have to go back and do that same surgery again in order to make sure that skin cancer is out. And that's still not a guarantee that it's completely removed. Whereas with the Mohs procedure, which is what we offer at PEM and is offered at a few other locations in the nation, we can make sure that melanoma is out that same day um, with complete assurance that the margins are clean. In fact, the cure rate is above 99% with the technique we use, and then reconstruct that patient typically in the same day during the same visit. And I think, Bill, what we need to emphasize is basal cell, squamous cell, they're usually so slow, slowly growing that they don't spread through your body. They can, like a basal cell. I always remember that is narrow. It's small on the surface, but it grows deeply um, and even can in go into your bone. But for the most part, basal cell doesn't metastasize or spread. Squamous maybe can, uh, but melanoma is more likely to do that. That's why it's so important to do it the right way, get every little cell. In fact, as a GI doc, I see a lot of cancer, esophageal and colon, and the marker, the metric that we use to measure uh, remission is at five years, if we catch it early in the first stage, 90% or higher of our patients are still with us. If it's you know stage two or stage B, then the chances drop. With melanoma, we don't even talk about five years, correct? We wait for 10 years to say whether they're in remission. So that just underlines the severity of it. Tell us about some of the new, uh, I'll, I'll be um, pop culture here and say some of the new gadgets like dermatoscopy. As, a, as an endoscopist, I love to think that you have gadgets in dermatology that help and smartphone apps. Yeah, well, well we love our tools <laughs> and um, dermoscopy is one that has gotten to be very popular lately. And, and basically what it is, is um, it's a magnifying lens uh, that uses polarized light in the tool. So um, dermatologists are using this tool to look at, say, a mole on the body and look at it closely and not only study what it looks like from a macroscopic or naked eye view, but also look at some of the very fine um, features on the surface of the skin cancer, 
or the lesion to help dictate whether or not we think it's going to be something that warrants a biopsy or something we can monitor. Um, but that's become a really helpful tool for dermatologists in order to um, uh, guide patients and to decide you know, whether or not putting someone through a biopsy is even necessary or not. And there are now um, different um, means of doing dermoscopy that you can uh, telemedicine. There's certain ways where you can see patients um, through telemedicine and um, still get dermoscopic images. Um, there's also smartphone apps, although those are still relatively new. Um, and so, uh, you know, I can't necessarily recommend a particular app yet, um, but technology is advancing. And, um, you know, because the skin is a, a very easy organ to access, it, it's uh, very easily visualized. Uh, it makes a lot of the new technology uh, very helpful in um, helping patients uh, diagnose lesions and do things remotely. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could either forward the image to your doctor or even store images to uh, refer to in the future. So I pulled together some rules of thumb for watching moles or skin changes, and I've written them. I'll zip through them, and you can add or subtract. We want our listeners to avoid that strong sun between 10 and 4. We used to say 11 to 2, 10 to 4. And remember, even cloudy days, the UV rays can pass through. And even in the shade, wear sunscreen because the UV light can still be reflected off other surfaces. Sunscreen, at least a 30. Yes, Bill? And make sure yeah. that the package says or the tube says UVA and UVB protection. In the past, I would say for the past 10 years that they covered both. They didn't always. And don't think that a 50 is going to protect you longer. If you're perspiring, you're in the swimming pool, you have to reapply frequently. Do not count on your cosmetics like a foundation or lipstick to be a sunscreen or fake tanning products, right? They turn your skin brown, but it's not protecting it from sunburn. Look for an SPF on that lipstick or the foundation. And on the, the good side, sunscreen does not prevent us from absorbing vitamin D. I think half of America is low in vitamin D. I check on the patients all the time. I don't know why. Maybe you can theorize on that. But um, And sunscreen does expire, so treat yourself to a new uh, container of sunscreen every summer. And I think moms are already reminded by their pediatricians to not put sunscreen on children under the age of six months. Yes, I agree with all you said. And, and um, you know, it's not just one thing. All those different factors in combination are what are going to help you have um, good sun hygiene. And one other thing I'll add, too, is um, if you can, seek shade. Uh, if you're out on the beach, have an umbrella. Um, some protective clothing has become more fashionable. Uh, there are different brands out there. I won't mention any specific one, um, but there are the sun protective clothing has become thankfully more fashionable, uh, but a wide brim hat, sunglasses, and an SPF shirt that covers your arms. And um, if you can, it's not if it's not too hot, wearing pants that will physically protect your legs is also helpful. And um, yes, SPF 30 or above, if you're outside and you're perspiring, you're in the water, reapplying every two hours, because um, it, it it's true, you know, even though we might have some reassurance with a higher SPF, say even an SPF 100, you do need to reapply it uh, if you're uh, under those conditions. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap up with Dr. Bill Higgins from the University of Penn. 
Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And in our final segment with Dr. Bill Higgins from Department of Dermatology at Penn. Bill, what is your final message for our listeners? We, we got through so much important information today about skin cancers and melanomas and treatments. Uh, yes, uh, and thank you so much, Marianne. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, my final comments would be um, to, if you have a personal or family history of skin cancer, it is important to at least have a baseline skin exam. Uh, and if you have a personal family history of skin cancer, recommend having your body surveillance every six months to a year. The reason for this is if a skin cancer is caught in its earlier phases, the treatment is much easier. The treatment is oftentimes much less invasive. So that's when we can discuss treating an area with liquid nitrogen, gently scraping it from the surface of the skin, or even using a cream. As the skin cancers get more progressed, of course, the therapy gets more progressed. And so surveillance is important. Catching it early is important. And just want to reinforce what Marianne was saying, the, the rules of skin cancer prevention are great. Um, enjoy life, enjoy the outdoors, but just do it with discretion because uh, that's going to keep you out of the dermatologist's office and more importantly, out of the most surgery office. And I think I, I want to drive home what you said earlier, Bill. Uh, if you have a mole and it's new uh, in third decade of life or older, second decade of life, um, yeah. keep your eye on that because um, it could be life-changing. And the other rule of thumb from medical school was if you have a skin lesion that itches, other than a bug bite, that's itchy, painful, or bleeding, or just doesn't heal, don't waste time. Go to a dermatologist and, and maybe not always uh, depend on your primary care doc because there are nuances to skin lesions that um, primary care docs, you wouldn't expect them to know, right? So true. I mean, the primary care doctors are great at picking things up. Um, but it's always great to have a dermatologist weigh in as well. And it truly honestly makes a huge difference if they're caught early. Um, so you're, you're doing yourself a favor by getting them addressed earlier. If a patient wanted to make an appointment to see you for a Mohs procedure or one of the dermatologists at Penn, how would they contact you? And could you give our listeners a website or some references for reading about skin cancer, melanoma, and Mohs? Yeah, well, um, the simplest way is just Googling Penn Mohs Surgery, and your first hit's going to be our Mohs Surgery Treatment Team. On that website will be our contact information. We have multiple offices. Um, one of them is by the Hospital University of Pennsylvania at the Perlman Center. Uh, the one that I am mainly at is at the uh, Pennsylvania Hospital uh, Mohs Unit. We also have one in Radnor and then one in Bucks County. And... Um, to contact us, uh, oftentimes the easiest way is just to give us a call. Uh, our office, our number is 215-829-3100. Um, and we're always happy to see patients, even if it's a non-skin cancer issue. We have a great team of general dermatologists here at the Pennsylvania Hospital office, and we're happy to see patients. Websites that are helpful, the American Academy of Dermatology, the American Cancer Society, and the Skin Cancer Foundation each have very good informative um, segments that are great for patients who want to learn more about how to prevent skin cancer and what to look for. So I'd recommend Googling 
uh, American Academy of Dermatology, American Cancer Society, or Skin Cancer Foundation. They're uh, really great websites, websites and resources to help answer some very common questions that are out there. Thank you, Bill. And thank you for all your time and wisdom that you shared with us today. 215-829-3100 if you want to see Dr. Higgins or one of his colleagues. Bill, a very special time. thank you for being with us today. I learned so much. And I have to say my rotation as a student at Penn Dermatology was one of my all-time favorites. Oh, well, glad to hear that. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. you're a real champion. I call this segment a new lease on life. Domestic abuse, it comes in many forms, verbal, physical, sexual, financial, emotional. All forms of domestic abuse can have an impact and potentially be traumatic. 1976, a woman in Delaware County was brutally beaten to death by her husband, leaving their six children without a mother. A group of lawyers came together and formed the Domestic Abuse Project of Delaware County. Their beautiful website explains their history. The goal, to provide a safe haven along with advocacy and supportive services to victims of domestic abuse that were not otherwise available in Delaware County. Still today, DAP, Domestic Abuse Project, is the sole provider in the county of services exclusively to victims of domestic violence. I shared a lengthy conversation with Ms. Julia Avalos, the Executive Director. She explained that historically, victims of domestic abuse don't want to talk about their experiences. They want to sweep the history under the rug. Julie says DAP has a different mindset. Not thinking or talking about those traumas actually perpetuates, sometimes escalates, and in fact justifies this horrific behavior, making it harder to leave. Julie states, we believe in not being quiet. We're present. We speak out. We want to give a voice to survivors and eliminate violence. We want to give victims the courage to speak out because abuse is never acceptable. It's never your fault. In her first years as a social worker, Julie helped teen moms and dads making visits to their homes. Each time she witnessed a heartbreaking example of domestic or dating violence, her own commitment to help people heal grew stronger. When I asked if she had any particular stories, she said there were thousands She mentioned the term rapid rehousing. Recently, after bringing a victim to safety and providing resources, Julie felt especially moved when she handed the key to an apartment to this young woman who has never had her own apartment, never had her own cell phone. It was a symbolic gesture, giving a key to open the door to a new path, a new lease on life. Julie stated that 90% of their survivors are women, but they also have men who seek their help. Men are more often hesitant to admit that they're victims of abuse. The message, we're here for you. You can do something to change your situation. DAP has counselors and advocates available for walk-in appointments and a 24-7 hotline to discuss an individual situation and provide safety planning. Counseling services are free, also available for children. DAP provides emergency shelter and safe house to adults and their dependent children, especially if they're in imminent risk of physical abuse, along with food, clothing, personal hygiene products, relocation assistance, safety planning, referral services, counseling for children. They also offer legal services for protection from abuse orders and other legal issues. DAP has a consignment shop called Nana's Attic 
filled with clothing, housewares, toys. It's a source of income for DAP and a resource for their clients. When an individual comes to a safe house, he or she is invited to go to Nana's attic for clothing and supplies and toys for themselves and children. Many of the very dedicated volunteers know of someone in their lives who's a survivor, which fuels their commitment. We salute you, Julie Avalos, the executive director, and Ms. Lynn Schoenfeld, who's an attorney and the president of the very impressive volunteer board of directors of the DAP, this week's Your Real Champions. Visit the website of the Domestic Abuse Project of Delaware County. That's DAPDC.org. Domestic Abuse Project of Delaware County. DAPDC.org. See how you can help this very important cause. And if you're in danger from abuse, there's a 24-7 helpline, hotline, 610-565-4590. Get a pencil, write this down. The hotline, 610-565-4590. Thank you for tuning in each Sunday. Tell us about a champion in your family or community. Send a suggestion for a medical top to info at yourradiodoctor.com. Listen to today's show and all our shows on yourradiodoctor.net. Ladies, each week I share this advice. Treat yourself like a diva. If you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. Come to Jefferson for the Pink Plus program. Get a mammogram, gynecology exam, and a GI visit to discuss colon cancer screening all in one visit. Or you can have mammogram and GI visit. Get your cancer screenings done. Catch up after all the COVID delays. That's Pink Plus. 215-503-1631. Pink plus 215-503-1631. Now pour that second cup of coffee or maybe a mimosa and sit back to enjoy the sounds of Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie wishing you a wonderful and safe week. And as your radio doctor, I'm here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.